Pastors Michael and Brenda Brunzo welcome you and thank you for listening to the following message. This message was recorded during a regular service at Faith Fellowship Church. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So we believe this message will encourage and strengthen you in your daily walk of faith. God bless you as you listen. Thank you for being with us this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Mark, the 14th chapter, Mark chapter 14. We're going to start reading with verse 22 down through 24. I'll be reading in the New International Version. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, we know this wasn't his actual body or his actual blood, but it was uh, a wafer, uh, probably a piece of matzah, unleavened bread. It's like a cracker. And uh, just wine. I'm sure it was wine or Sometimes we use grape juice, but they're only symbols of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. But there's nothing like enjoying a good home-cooked meal. You can tell by looking at me, I haven't missed too many of them. Amen? But there's nothing like it, especially when you're having that meal with friends and family. And uh, also when it's a holiday. I'm looking forward now to the uh, Resurrection Sunday. We normally call it Easter. We call it Resurrection Sunday for different reasons. But we're going to have a dinner, and we're going to have our family over. And it brings back childhood memories like Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner or birthday dinner or some kind of celebration. It's always better with food. And I always love it when we would get together with family and friends, and we would uh, talk about memories, and we would talk about things that are happening now and we would uh, share stories and be real honest with you. we swap lies. Now, I don't know about anybody else's family, but uh, some of the people I was grown up with, especially my brother-in-law, <laughs> first liar in our house didn't have a chance. I'm going to tell you right now, because <laughs> the next guy to speak up would have a, a lie that was bigger than the one you told. But it was all fun, amen? But I want to caution everybody to not take these times for granted, and I think that we should take advantage of every opportunity that we can get together, because as you know, this past year, there hasn't been too many get-togethers, and I don't know if you realize it or not, but it has affected people more than you know, and I think that we're in need of these kind of gatherings. We're in need of this type of fellowship and sharing with family and friends. Would you agree? Amen. So I want to caution you to take advantage of these opportunities because there's a lot of people that used to be at these gatherings that aren't here anymore, and they're missing from our gatherings. And I know some people have regrets. I wish I would have did this, said that, you know, uh, had them over more, enjoyed them more, and now it's too late. So don't live with those kind of regrets. If you have an opportunity to get together now, get together. Amen. And I'm not violating the law or encouraging you to violate the law, but I'm done with not getting together with my family and friends. Amen? And we're going to have a get-together on Resurrection Sunday, praise the Lord. But anyway, we should cherish these memories and take advantage of them, because like I said, sometime one, one day soon it'll be too late, and then we'll have regrets. But this is exactly what's happening with the Lord in our opening scripture. It describes a celebratory holiday meal called the Passover, and he was celebrating it with his disciples, his earthly family, the people that he loved. And uh, this, meal, th- this meal that we call the Last Supper is actually the Passover meal, and the Jews call it the Seder meal, which is a, a uh, celebratory meal that they have, uh, Jewish people have all over the year. And uh, Seder means order in the original language, and we certainly know that our God is a God of order. Amen? And uh, it's probably the most significant season of the year for the Jewish people, both past and present. And the Passover dinner is a memorial meal 
celebrating and remembering Israel's exodus from Egypt when God rescued his people from the bondage of Pharaoh or the bondage of the devil when they were in slavery for some 400 years and they were under a cruel and merciless taskmaster uh, by the name of Pharaoh, or at least that was his title. But they didn't start out as slaves. Joseph, one of Israel's uh, sons, who was hated by his brothers because of a couple dreams that he had that showed his brothers and his parents bowing down in homage to him. In other words, that he was going to be ruler over them someday. And they didn't like that dream, and so they, uh, the brothers hated Joseph, and they plotted against him. And uh, finally one day, the jealousy of his brothers led them to beat Joseph and sell him to a passing, uh, what do you call it, caravan. Yeah, thank you, Brother Darrell. A passing caravan. He sold them into slavery, and he eventually ended up in Egypt. And in Egypt, God showed him great favor and placed him in the house of Potiphar, which was an Egyptian leader, where God showed him all kinds of blessings and favor. But through a series of events, which included false accusations by Potiphar's wife, accused Joseph of uh, attacking her and trying to lay with her. And so uh, Potiphar believed his wife, of course, and he had Joseph in prison. And Joseph was in prison for a period of time. And God even showed him favor in prison. Amen. He had a baker and a a wine tester, a food tester that had dreams which he interpreted. And they remembered those dreams, and not at first, but eventually they told them to Pharaoh because Pharaoh had a dream. And this is all part of God's plan, and God is orchestrating all of this stuff. And so the baker remembered, hey, I had a man in prison with me. As a matter of fact, Joseph was in charge of the prison. After a short time, they put Joseph in charge of the whole prison. And so, uh, and that was God showing him favor. And so he says, I remember somebody in prison that interpreted my dream and this, the other guy's dream, and they come to pass exactly like they were interpreted. And Pharaoh says, get that guy. I want him to interpret my dream. And so Joseph comes out of the prison, and uh, Joseph built, or uh, I'm losing my place here. Hold on a minute. I got ahead of myself there a little bit. I hate when that happens. But anyway, God, God eventually led Joseph to this uh, position in Egypt under Pharaoh. He was, only, he was second only to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. So he was like, Pharaoh was like the president. He was the vice president. But Pharaoh listened to all the things that Joseph had to say because he knew that God was with Joseph and God was revealing things to Joseph, and so he gave him his ear. And God gave Pharaoh this series of dreams that, uh, and then gave Joseph the interpretation of the dreams. And uh, to make a long story short, one of the dreams showed seven years of plenty and prosperity for Egypt. And then another dream showed seven years of great famine and Egypt not doing so well. And so God told Joseph exactly what to do, and Joseph told Pharaoh the interpretation of the dreams that he had. And then he told Pharaoh, we're going to build these gigantic silos all over Egypt. And we're going to grow extra grain. And we're going to put a tax on all the farmers that are growing this grain. And they're going to put into our silos. And we're going to store this grain up until we hit the seven years of famine. And then we'll have plenty to eat and plenty to sell. When the process of not only sustaining Egypt for that seven years of famine, he also had enough grain to sell to the neighboring countries that were starving. So this money is coming into Egypt, and uh, pretty soon the people that couldn't pay for the grain anymore, Pharaoh was allowing them to pay with their land. And so eventually Pharaoh owned all the known world, all the land and all the known world, uh, during that time of plenty. But eventually, the famine is what brought Israel, jo Joseph's father, Israel, to Egypt with his brothers and his whole family and the clan. And that was all of Israel. I mean, uh, now Israel was actually Jacob. You know, uh, God was the father of Abraham, Isaac, 
and Jacob. But Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And he was the patriarch or the procreator of the, of the entire Israel nation. And right now it's a small nation. I think they had like 70 members that come to Egypt. And then during their time in Egypt, they grew into a great nation. And Pharaoh perceived them, or, or Pharaoh, Pharaoh loved Joseph and his father and all the children and everything. And so he gave them a land called Goshen. And that's where they lived. And they prospered greatly there in that land. And then uh, finally, Pharaoh, well, Joseph died off, and Israel died off, and Pharaoh died off. And uh, during that time, Israel grew into a great nation, and the new Pharaoh that came on, he was full of the devil. He didn't like Israel. He perceived Israel to be a threat to him because they were greater even than the population of Egypt. And so he takes them under slavery and begins to rule them with a heavy hand. So let's read about it in Exodus chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. I want you to especially see how much can change with just one generation. In Exodus 1, 6, it says, And Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation. And the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceeding mighty. And the land was filled with them. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, a new Pharaoh, which knew not Joseph. He didn't know Joseph. And he said unto his people, so you see how important history is? And we shouldn't be messing with history. We shouldn't be eliminating history. We shouldn't be destroying statues and things that, that remind us of historical events. I mean, maybe there were some bad things that happened, but you know what? It's still a part of history. It still happened, and we shouldn't put our head in the sand concerning any of these things. But because they didn't pay attention to history, this new pharaoh didn't know Joseph or didn't know about Joseph and all the good things he did and how he saved Egypt. And so he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Now, don't forget, this just started out with like 70 members of their family. He says, come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Well, of course, Israel would, would never have done anything like that because they would have been loyal to the Pharaoh, and they would, have been, they would have had an allegiance to the Pharaoh, and they would have fought with Pharaoh and not against him, because they would have been fighting for their homeland as well. But Pharaoh believed a bunch of lies, and so this is what he does. Therefore, they did set over them taskmasters. How many knows the devil is a master taskmaster? To afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel, and the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. It was vigorous servanthood. And God had promised Abraham, the father of Isaac, who was the father of Jacob, who was later named Israel. God promised him hundreds of years before that he would make Israel into a great nation. And he did while they were sojourning in Israel. And he also prophesied that they would be put into bondage for a period of 400 plus years. And this is because of previous things that Israel had did that we don't have time to go in, into. But all of that happened in Egypt. Now listen to Genesis 12, 1 and 2. It says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. And of course, we're blessed because of Jesus Christ, which came from that lineage. But here's an example. The first Pharaoh treated Israel fairly and without contempt, and God blessed him 
and the land grew and it prospered. The second Pharaoh comes in, he treats Israel with contempt, and so God placed him under a curse. And it was downhill from that day. And then in Genesis 15, 13, and 14, And he said unto Abram, this is Abraham before God renamed him, he says, Know of a surety, or be sure about this, that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. Talking about Egypt. And shall serve them, and they shall afflict them for 400 years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. And so God is faithful. He hadn't forgotten his promise to Israel, and he fulfilled that promise in Egypt under Joseph. And so when the time came, God sent Moses to free his people from Pharaoh, but Pharaoh would not let his people go. And so Moses says, let the people go. Pharaoh said, no. So God sends 10 plagues on the land to convince Pharaoh that he's God and Pharaoh was not. And so the first nine plagues were water turned to blood, frogs all over the land, gnats or lice, flies, livestock pestilence like hoof and mouth disease or something like that, boils on everything that lived, gigantic hail, locusts, and darkness. Now, I want you to understand that uh, all these plagues were supernatural, but the most miraculous thing about these plagues is none of them occurred in Goshen. All over Egypt, but not in Goshen. When there was darkness in the land, so and I mean, I'm talking about a darkness that you could taste in your mouth. It was so dark they couldn't see their hand in front of their face, but there was sun shining in Goshen. Hallelujah. And finally, the tenth plague came, which was the death of the firstborn of every household. But the Lord made a way to spare his people as well in Goshen through the sacrifice of an innocent lamb that they were instructed to apply the blood of that innocent lamb with a hyssop branch on the doorpost and the lintel of the door. And so uh, God said when the death angel, the destroyer, God is not the death angel and he's not the destroyer, that's the devil's job. He said when the death angel or the destroyer saw the blood on the door, he would pass over, henceforth the name Passover, pass over that house. And it was after this 10th plague that Pharaoh finally let the Israelites go. But God said, the blood shall be to you for a symbol, a sign upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Now, he says that I smite and I destroy and I do this, but he's saying that in the permissive sense. He's not the destroyer. He's not the one doing the smiting. He is just saying, I am allowing the destroyer. I'm allowing the smiter to do these things. And uh, so they not only had to have faith in the blood that they sprinkled on the doorposts and lentils of their, of their house, they also had to apply that blood. It wasn't enough just to have faith in the blood. They had to apply it. And that's what they used that hyssop branch for. And uh, faith always requires action on the part of the believer. You can say what you believe all you want, but if you don't act like you believe it, then it will never come to pass for you. So they had to have faith in the blood, and then they had to apply it. James says, without works, faith is dead. And so uh, their faith was believing that the blood would save them, and the works was actually applying it to the doorposts and lentils of the house. In the modern-day church, we apply the blood with our tongues. That's our hyssop. And we plead the blood, and we uh, uh, spread the blood. Uh, you know, just when, before we have service in the morning and on Wednesday night, when me and the pastor at pray, we also put a, we call it a blood curtain over the doorway of the church. And everybody comes through that door has to pass through that blood curtain. Of course, there's no, you can't see no blood or feel it, but in the spirit, it's there. We applied it with the hyssop of our tongue and we believe it's there and we believe it's working. Amen. 
And so when you pass through that curtain, you leave all that junk, that negative junk outside there where it belongs in the world. Amen? So the only thing God was looking for that night when he passed over the land of Egypt was the blood from that innocent lamb. It was the blood and only the blood that saved them from the destroyer. And he didn't care. God didn't care who was in the house. He didn't care how intelligent they were. He didn't care how educated they were. He didn't care how much money they had, what color they wore, what type of clothes they wore. He didn't care about any of that stuff. The only thing he, he didn't even care about their attitudes. The only thing he cared about was the blood. That's all he wanted to see was the blood. And he said, when I see the blood, I will not allow the destroyer to come in unto you. But he also warned them and said, you have to stay in the house. You, you go in the house, and once you apply that blood, you go in the house, and you stay there until the destroyer passes. And so, in other words, he says, stay under the blood. I can't help you if you're not under the blood. I can't protect you if you're not under the blood. Stay in the house. And the blood symbolizes the fact that there were believers in that house that had faith in that blood and applied that blood that it would protect them and keep them safe when the destroyer came through. And, you know, I've always wondered why some people won't stay in the house. Why do some people think that it's safe to go outside of the house? Oh, but I'm just going to go out for a little while. I'll be back. Sometimes you are. Sometimes you ain't. We've had people leave the house and, and come back beat up and tattered and ragged and all of that. And we had to minister to them, get them healed and get them built back up again. And they're still here today. But we've had others that left the house that never came back. Why? The destroyer got a hold of them. And he began to destroy. Maybe he won't destroy you all at once, but little by little, he will kill, steal, and destroy everything that you own. He'll start with your relationships. He'll start with your finances. He'll start anywhere that he can. He can get a foot in, and he will little by little, one step at a time, ultimately destroy you, and you won't be back. Amen. Amen. And, and I don't know why people would want to do that. You know, it's like they have to get out and they have to do their own thing once in a while. We have to get out and have a little fun. Why can't you have fun as a Christian? If you can't have fun as a Christian, then you got a problem. Amen. I mean, we could have fun, but God wants us to have clean fun. You can go to a football game and shout till you can't even speak anymore. You can even take your shirt off and paint yourself blue if you want, or red if you're on the other side of town. He don't care about that. You don't have to have a beer in your hand to have fun. You don't have to smoke a joint to have fun. You don't have to take drugs to have fun. Amen? You could have fun as a Christian. Clean fun. Amen? Fun approved by God. Hallelujah. But anyway... Even when the children of Israel were passing through the wilderness, he had them under a cloud by day, under a pillar of fire by night. And if they wandered out from under that cloud, he couldn't protect them, or he wouldn't protect them because that was his commandment. Stay under the cloud. Stay under the pillar. If you wander off, the destroyer will get you a little butt. You just wait. Keep on wandering off, and he will get you sooner or later. Amen. As long as they stayed under the cloud, I'm telling you, their shoes didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't wear out. They were protected from the sun. They had air conditioning in the day, heat at night, and, and, and they were well protected and provided for under that cloud. Why would you want to get out from under the cloud? I don't understand it. But going back to the Passover in Egypt, the Bible says the ones who stayed in the house under the blood, God brought them forth with silver and gold healed them all, and gave them the lands of the heathen. And some people don't think that's fair. Why would God do that? Why would he take other people's lands? Why would he take other people's riches? Why is the wealth of the wicked laid up for the righteous? Because it belonged to God in the first place. And the wicked stole it. Amen. And besides that, when Israel left Egypt, they just got back pay for 400 years of hard work. Amen. 
They had every penny coming. And the land that God gave them was the land that he originally gave to Pharaoh. So all he was doing was taking back something that belonged to him. God, remember I told you, God's fair. Always fair. So we have to stay under the blood. The blood will pro protect you and save you to the uttermost. It will deliver you from slavery. It will heal you. Hallelujah. And when you get under the blood and stay under the blood, God will always protect you. Why? Because you honor the blood. And God will honor you. They that honor me, I will honor. Exodus 12, 23 through 24 describes the uh, Israel leaving Egypt. He said, for the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts of the door, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come in unto your house to smite you. And you shall observe this thing, the Passover celebration, the Passover meal. You shall observe this as an ordinance to you and to your sons forever. Forever. That means we're going to be celebrating the Passover meal forever. Even after Jesus returns and we go to heaven, we're going to celebrate the Passover meal. God wants us to remember that. And what God did in Exodus chapter 12 with that Passover lamb that was sacrificed in Egypt, it was a type and shadow of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus was chosen and sacrificed on Calvary, it was a perfect fulfillment of the original Passover that happened in Egypt like 1,500 years before that. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for even Christ, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed for us. The New Testament celebration of Passover for the Christian is communion. Every time we have communion, we are remembering Christ. He said, this do in remembrance of me. We are not only remembering what Christ did, but we're remembering the bitter slavery to sin before we come to Christ. And that's been memorialized. We're to celebrate that every year to remind us of where we came from and where God brought us to. Amen. But I would like for us to look at the traditional Passover meal that Jewish people are celebrating all over the world this week and uh, different places, different times. It's called the Seder meal. Like I said, Seder means order, and our God certainly is a God of order. The entire Seder meal is highly symbolic and points directly to Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. But we only have time to look at a few of the symbols this morning. I'd like to do an actual Seder meal. Uh, I, I participated in a Seder meal, I think, twice in my life. And the symbolism is amazing with that meal. But anyway, we'll just look at some parts of it this morning, a few of the symbols. The Passover Seder table is set with partition plates. I know every mama in here has seen a partition plate. It's got a, a plate with dividers in it, and you put the corn here and the mashed potatoes here and a little meat here and the little collard greens here, and, you know, it's got little partitions. Well, that's what the Seder plate is like. And each food that's involved in the Seder is symbolic of different aspects of the original Passover meal. For example, a roasted shank bone of a lamb represents the sacrifice. A roasted egg represents the circle of life. Bitter herbs, these are all things that's on this Seder plate. Bitter herbs represent the bitterness of slavery. Salt water represents the tears they shed in Egypt. And then there's an applesauce-like mixture with wine, nuts, and apples. And I really had to research this one because it said it represented the mortar. And I didn't think that was a good thing, but according to this, it's a sweet mixture because it points to the hope of a future. So I can see it now. Uh, and finally, there's some greens like parsley or something like that to represent spring and new life. Also on the table are three pieces of matzah, which is a cracker-like unleavened bread that represents the bread that the Israelites took with them when they fled Egypt. Uh, and the reason it's unleavened is because the bread didn't have time to rise. They had to, they had to fix it unleavened for the journey because they left in a hurry. 
And then there are specific glasses of wine, and sometimes they're just small cups, like our little communion cups or something, because they're all symbolic. Uh, and the Torah commands that at least four symbolic cups of wine be consumed during the Seder dinner or the Passover meal. And during the course of the meal, they would drink the cups of wine with a toast with each one. And they would recite, for example, a prayer of blessing over the first cup. Then they would read the Exodus story over the second cup. Then they would recite the grace after meals over the third cup. And then they would sing psalms and hymns of praise to God over the fourth cup. And there's different explanation as to the significance of the different cups and what they express. But each of them expressed the different stages of redemption. They were pointing to redemption in four different stages. And here's one explanation. Number one, it was salvation from harsh labor. And this began as soon as the plagues were introduced. Number two is salvation from servitude, or the day the Jews left Egypt geographically and arrived at Ramses. Number three, it was the splitting of the Red Sea, after which the Jews felt completely redeemed without the fear of the Egyptians returning, because God closed the sea on top of them and drowned Pharaoh and his armies. And then number four, becoming a nation at Sinai. These are all uh, redemptive qualities of this Seder meal. And during the Seder meal, those elements of redemption could be experienced by a, a Christian in a spiritual sense because we left our Egypt, which was our slavery to sin, of which the devil was our evil taskmaster, and we left our servitude of the flesh. We quit serving the flesh, amen, and started serving God. So in modern celebration... There's actually a fifth expression that God spoke to the Israelites in the book of Exodus when he said, And I will bring you to the land which I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as an inheritance. So he promised this land to Israel. And while the exodus from Egypt and the birth of the Jewish nation were permanent, they have yet to be brought back to Israel on a permanent basis. In honor of this verse, some Jews have added a fifth cup of wine called the cup of Elijah. And this cup is set up for Elijah, also a chair, an empty chair that nobody's allowed to sit in. It's reserved for Elijah during the second half of the Seder meal. But they don't drink it because they believe that Elijah will come, occupy that seat, and drink that cup of wine when he announces the coming of the Messiah. See, they don't believe the Messiah has come yet. The Orthodox Jew doesn't. And then, of course, well, I'm going to go a little bit further, but some more modern Seder meals, more politically correct Seder meals, have also added a cup of water. And that water represents the water uh, of Moses' sister, Meredith, uh, that she provided after the Red Sea incident. And uh, so... It's like a feminist movement, and that's why they put the cup in there, because there was no women represented in this Seder meal, and some of your modern Jewish meals are, are adding that, that, fifth, that sixth cup. Also on the Seder plate was the matzah, or the unleavened bread. As the Jewish people left Egypt, they were in such haste, like I said, they didn't allow their bread to rise, and that's why Passover was followed by the week-long festival called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But I want to spend a few minutes talking about the matzah. There's some really fascinating things about the matzah that provide a, a remarkable picture of Christ, the Messiah. I mean, all through the Bible, Old Testament and New, God was trying to show the people of Israel, the Jews, different ways and different signs uh, that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, and most of them missed the signs. Uh, that's why there's a, the, your Orthodox Jews are still looking for the Messiah to come. They don't believe it was Jesus. But anyway, the, the matzah used for the Passover Seder had to be prepared in a certain way. Of course, unleavened, no yeast, and they'd roll out that dough, and they would pierce that dough with a fork or something, put a bunch of little holes in it. Did you ever see the holes like in crackers? It would have little holes all through the dough. 
And then they'd bake it on a grill-like plate that would leave like grill marks on the matzah or stripes. And then, uh, of course, the stripes represent Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 that said he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. So that's what the stripes represent. But the Jews don't believe that. And then, uh, of course, Jesus was pierced by the nails in his hands and feet and by the Romans' spear in his side. And that's why they pierced the matzah. They do it customarily, but it's actually the reason they're doing it is because he was pierced and he was striped. Then the matzah is placed in a bag called an ekod, which in the original text actually means one, one bag. But this one bag has three chambers on the inside of it. One piece of matzah is placed into each chamber of the bag. Now, here's where it gets inter- interesting. The matzah placed in the first chamber is never touched, never used, never seen during the dinner. The second matzah in the bag is broken in half at the beginning of the meal. Half of the broken matzah is placed back in the ecod. The other half is wrapped in a linen cloth and hidden. The third matzah in the bag is eaten with the elements of the Seder plate. The word ekod means unity and plurality. It's used in Genesis uh, 2.24 where it says, The man and his wife will become ekod, or one flesh. And then it appears again in Numbers 13.33 when the spies returned from Canaan with an ekod of grapes, a cluster of grapes. And in both cases, the word ekod refers to a complex unity of one. It was one cluster of grapes made up of many different grapes. And, you know, we use ecods all the time. Uh, One baseball team, many members, one team. Many football players, one team. You know, just uh, it's plurality and unity. It's it's a team, but it's one team. And so this is the the essence of the ecod right here. And and many Jews consider the three matzahs to represent Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who again is Israel. But here's the problem with that, that they can't explain why they break Isaac in half or why they place half of the middle matzah back in the ecod and keep the other half out wrapped in a a linen cloth. It makes no sense to do that to Isaac. But the meaning of the Seder ritual makes more sense when it's interpreted in light of the New Testament which indicates the Trinity, which is unity and plurality, is three gods in one, one God in three. And the Trinity explains it much better uh, because the matzah represents the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They don't accept that, though. It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to them. And the second matzah, the broken one, represents the Son, Jesus, of course, And the reason the middle matzah is broken is to picture the broken body of Christ, which represents death. Now, we know that Christ never had a broken bone in his body. They wouldn't allow him to break any bones. But what broken means here, it just simply means death. When you see the word broken here, it's talking about uh, the death of Christ. He was broken for us. He died for us. And the half that was put back in the ecod, in that center pouch, represents Jesus' divine nature. The other half that was wrapped in a linen cloth and hidden represents Jesus in his humanity. So the, the linen cloth that, that wraps uh, half of the second piece of masa and then is hidden, it suggests Jesus' burial cloth. And during the Seder, this linen cloth with the other half is hidden, and after the dinner, the children that were present for the dinner look for it, and when they find it, they hold it for a ransom. And, and it's all in part of the symbolism, but the ransom is when they find it and they present it to the head of the Seder table, he gives them something valuable. And so they, they search for it intensely because the one that finds us is going to get something valuable. So Jesus is a precise completion of the New Testament Passover that Jeremiah spoke of in in chapter 31 of his book. You read it on your own time. 
but it describes exactly what happened. And that's, you know, some 1,200 years before or something like that. And the Passover Seder meal bears it out word for word. And then Jesus led that Passover Seder. We call the Last Supper in the upper room. We thought they were just having a big old meal and partying, but they were actually having the Seder meal. They were having the memorial meal of Passover, just like they had every year for 1,500 years, but that was only a rehearsal. Now the play is about to begin, and Jesus is the star of it. And, and so Jesus leads this Passover Seder, and as he went through all the different elements and traditions, each part of the feast told the story of God's ultimate redemption and deliverance, which he, Jesus, was about to fulfill personally in just a few short hours. He was actually going to become the Passover, the Passover lamb that was sacrificed in Exodus 1,500 years before. Now, here's something else that's interesting. It was a feast, and uh, it was the feast of Passover is what it's called, the holiday. And it's that, that word feast is a compound word. I know this don't mean anything to you, but in the original language, it was mikra, which means a rehearsal. And then the other word of the compound word was moed, which means an appointed time, a fixed time, an exact time. So what it's saying is this feast of Passover was a rehearsal that pointed to an exact time, an appointed time, a fulfillment of the original Passover. So in other words, just at the right time, God sent Moses to deliver his people. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent, for, uh, sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, to become the Passover lamb and redeem all those who were under the law, which was all of Israel and, of course, us. We were under the law. If you couldn't make it on your own, you went to hell. Well, nobody could make it on their own. Nobody could fulfill the law. That's why we needed a Passover lamb. We needed a sacrifice that would take our place, die in our place, die for our sins, pay the price for our sins, and that was Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb. And just like with the original one, it was they had to pick that lamb on a certain day and sacrifice it on a certain day and a certain time. So our Passover lamb, Jesus, had to be uh, picked at a certain time, sacrificed at a certain time and a certain day, and that day was Passover. That was, we call it Good Friday, but it was Bad Friday for him. Amen. Now, they selected that lamb. They had to select that lamb, and then that lamb had to live amongst the family till that appointed time. And then they would slaughter it, take the blood, and sprinkle it on the doorposts and lentils of the house. So they selected Christ when he came through the gates on Palm Sunday, a week before, he comes through the gates into Jerusalem, and they all hailed him as the Messiah, as the King of the Jews, and gave him all the accolades. That was the day that they selected him as their lamb. And then he was crucified on Passover. Had to be on Passover. Couldn't be any other time because it had to be a perfect fulfillment of the first Passover in Egypt. But in that upper room, Jesus took the wine which represented the blood of the Passover lamb. And he said, this is my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then he, he broke the unleavened bread, which was a symbol of sinlessness, and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Of course, this was symbolic, but he was telling them, this is what's about to happen here in a few hours. And the very next day on the altar of eternity, upon a cross reserved for a criminal, Jesus became our Passover lamb. And God presented him as the atoning sacrifice, again, through faith in the blood. In order to demonstrate his righteousness, because of in his forbearance and the things that he bore or bared, he had passed over the sins that were committed beforehand. And every time we take communion, we, we're invited to reflect upon and remember what the Lord Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, did for us. And uh, uh, every time he said this, do in remembrance of me. So every time we do this, we're not only remembering him, but we're remembering him as our Passover lamb. Because that's our Seder dinner, the Christian, modern day Christian Seder dinner, all wrapped up in 
two elements, the bread and the wine. We don't have all those other elements and all that other symbolicness because we have the Bible for that. And the Jews are celebrating this Seder meal, and sometimes more than once during the holidays. And on every table is a, is a portion, or if not all, of the things that I described. And then even more than that, because I didn't describe the entire meal. But they do that every year in anticipation of the coming Messiah, who will be their Passover lamb. And I know we're hearing all kinds of baloney nowadays that, you know... Uh, talking about the Messiah and what's his nationality and what color he is and all of this stuff. And I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of silliness out there. Jesus is not black. He's not white. He's not Indian. He's not any of those things. He may be dark colored in skin, but he is a Sephardic Jew. He is a Jew to the very core because any Messiah that comes that is not a Jew with the ancestry of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he will never be accepted as the Messiah, and he certainly can't be the Antichrist. They're saying all things about the Antichrist. Some people think Obama is the Antichrist. He's not the Antichrist. The Antichrist has to be a Jew, and I believe a Syrian Jew, based on the scriptures they describe the area he comes from, he's going to have to be a Jew in order for the... the the Jews to believe that he's the Messiah. They're not going to accept any other nationality, any other person. It's going to have to be a Jew for them to buy him as the Messiah. Because he's going to create a peace agreement. And he's going to get all peace in the Middle East. All over the Middle East is going to be peace. Some people think Trump was the Antichrist because he started those peace treaties but didn't get to finish them because of whatever. And so... He's not the Antichrist. He's not a Jew. They're not going to accept him as the Messiah. But anyway, this Messiah is going to create a, a peace agreement in the Middle East that's actually going to work for a period of time. But about halfway through this peace agreement, he's going to stand up in the temple and declare himself to be God. Well, if he's not a Jew, he's never even going to get, going to get in the temple to begin with. And he's going to do something to desecrate the temple, maybe sacrifice a pig because they're not kosher and the Jews don't eat pigs. But he may sacrifice a pig uh, or a slab of ribs or some chitlins on the altar and, and desecrate it. And, and, and then he's going to turn against the Jews and they're going to take flight. He's going to try to kill them all, just like Hitler did and, and other people down through history. All of that has to be done by a Jew, by race, by nation, by birth. Otherwise, it's not going to be done. So quit looking at all these stupid things and ideas that people have about who, the, who Christ is and who the Antichrist is. I just told you he's a Jew. And the, the Antichrist is going to be a Jew because he has to pass for the Messiah. Don't you think for a minute they're not going to check his pedigree because they are. They're going to go all the way back on his ancestry. You talk about Ancestry.com. They're going all the way back to the book of Genesis to make sure he came, first of all, from Adam Second of all, from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes. Amen. Yes. So forget all of that junk about who he is. I know who he is. Amen. Oh, anyway, before I get in trouble, this would be a good place to receive communion. But we're not going to. I'm going to reserve that for uh, Resurrection Sunday. Because this is one of the first Resurrection Sundays that we have. Uh, our first Sunday in April. And so we always have communion on first Sunday. So in, in that tradition, not only that tradition, but I want to celebrate new life. I want to celebrate the resurrection to new life. And this communion is not only going to be symbolic of that, but it's going to be symbolic of us leaving some things behind, letting some things stay in that grave. Amen. And just us rising up with new life a new lease on life, a new beginning. Yes. That's what spring represents, right? Yes. A new beginning. That's what those little green herbs represented. Yes. New life, yes. spring, hallelujah. hallelujah. And I know it's all symbolic of, of actual events that occurred in the natural, but there is so much spiritual significance to it. We don't want to miss any of it. Amen. Yes. And, and, and we need to begin to apply the blood with the hip, hyssop of our tongue on everything that we do. 
Amen. Apply the blood to your family. Apply the blood to your house, your car, your grandchildren. Apply the blood everywhere you go. How? With your tongue. I plead the blood of Jesus upon. Amen. I have faith in the blood. It will set me free. It will deliver me. It will heal me. It will protect me. And it will prosper me. There's power in the blood. Hallelujah. You know, uh, Mark Hankins said, always told this joke. I don't know if it's original with him or not, but he used to tell this joke that he wanted so much of the power of the blood in him that if a mosquito bit him, it would fly away singing, there's power in the blood. Hallelujah. Yeah, that's, right. <laughs> that's what I want to have flowing through my veins. The blood of Christ. Hallelujah. Amen. A transfusion with the blood of Christ. That's what happened when you were born again. You had a transfusion of the blood of Christ is running through your veins now. In the natural, I'm Italian, but in the spirits, I'm a Jew to the core. Hallelujah. I got Jewish blood flowing through my veins. Amen. Hallelujah. Nothing wrong with the Italians. I love them. Love Italian food. Pasta. Of all kinds. Chicken parmigiana. Love it. Hallelujah. Tiramisu, cannoli, pizza. Hallelujah. Y'all hungry now, ain't you? Well, I'm going to let y'all go to lunch. Hallelujah. Next week, we look at the passion and the crucifixion. And it's going to be dark and gloomy. But it don't end there. Hallelujah. It don't end there. That's just the beginning of the end. Hallelujah. Well, God bless you, Facebook family. We love you and appreciate you. If you got anything out of this, hit the share button for us and let your friends know you enjoyed a good message this morning. We love you and appreciate you. We'll see you next week. This concludes this message. Thank you for listening. We pray that it's been a blessing to you. For more information about FFC or its ministries, please contact the church office. God bless you, and remember, Jesus is Lord.